when Katie and I uh, do premarital counseling, we have couples go through an exercise called the meaning of money. And uh, premarital counseling, if you don't know what that is, never heard of it, when couples are about to get married. Um, you know, there's the big wedding day, which is, you know, usually put tons of planning into that. We also want couples to put planning into what is actually being in, in a relationship going to look like after that wedding day. And how can they prepare best for that and get ready for, okay, we're going to now be uh, having this new relationship that we didn't have before. And um, ideally, we would hope they weren't living together and weren't sleeping together, and now suddenly we're living together, and now we're sleeping together, and now we're doing all these things that we weren't doing before together, and now you've mashed these two lives together, and how do we pre best prepare them um, for that situation? And, and so we try to help prepare them for that, so we go through this exercise called the meaning of money, and in it they reflect on how they see and use money uh, by answering 16 questions. Um, and then they add up their score on those questions. There are these questions for them to, s how do I see money? How do I use money? And at the end of it, they get this score that tells them, do they see money as status? Do they see money as security? Do they see money as enjoyment? Or do they see money as control? Money as status, money as security, money as enjoyment, or money as control? And we do this exercise because if you like do look at like marriage surveys, like people take them and it's like, what do couples get in the most disagreements about? It's usually about money and sex, like some of the two most intimate things. You combine your lives and it's like those are the two most intimate things, your wallet and what's happening in the bedroom. It's like those are what people get in arguments about. And so people have disagreements about those two things and they, those disagreements arise um, because of, in, in regards to money, because of, con of a conflict of values. So let's imagine a young couple, a married couple, gets a $200 check in the mail from their grandparents, and there's just a little note in it that says, like, and we're thinking of you, uh, here's a $200 check, you know, do whatever you want with it. And the husband is like, well, well we should go down to the city for the weekend. You know, and, cause he, and then the wife says, no, we should put it away in case of an emergency. And they get in this big argument, you know, he's got this $200 gift in the mail, they're supposed to use it as however they want. They get in this big argument about it, it's supposed to be this gift for them that's supposed to bless their marriage, but instead they get in this big argument about it. And the issue is a, a conflict of values. The husband values enjoyment. He sees money as enjoyment. And the wife sees money as security. So she says, we should put this away for an emergency. It's supposed to be for our security. The husband sees money as enjoyment. So we should use this to en enjoy it. And it's a conflict of values of how they see the money and how it should be used. And which one is right? Well, not necessarily either one is right. Like They're both right. It's a different perspective. It's a different way of valuing it and seeing how it should be used. And, but sometimes we have a conflict of values, not necessarily between two people, but within ourselves, that we have these two different values. Um, maybe when we go to the grocery store, like I have a value of eating healthy, but I also have a value of saving money. But the most healthy things for me to eat at the grocery store are also the most expensive things for me to buy. I, the, the organic, non-GMO, no-hormone, grass-fed, happy food that's good for me. You know, this food was happy its entire life. It never, you know, had a sad day until it died. Uh, and now you get to eat it. You know, that's the most expensive food. And the least expensive food, that's the worst food for me. So I have this conflict of values. Do I want, I want to save money, but I also want to eat healthy. Which one am I going to honor in that moment? It's this conflict. So which one's going to rank higher? As we're, uh, we're going to start a series today. It's going to go six weeks. And the, and the phrase this series, not that I want you to remember, but 
Um, but I'm thinking is a picture is worth a thousand words, and this is going to be a series we're calling a pic- I'm calling it Pictures of Following Jesus. Um, that we're I'm going to be going through six weeks um, uh, using our uh, DNA as a church um, as, as the roadmap. So you want to flip back uh, to the back of our songbook. Um, like almost the, it might be the, oh, I just stole Bob's songbook. There you go. All right. Very last page. You can see the roadmap of where we're going. Um, so what's Good News Church all about? Um, the first place we're going is, as a community, this is our mission. Um, we're surrendering all of life to Jesus and inviting others to do the same. And so surrendering all of life to Jesus, inviting others to do the same is our mission. That's what Nick reminded us at, at the beginning. And so we may ask, well, what is it mean to surrender all of life to Jesus? What, is, what does that even mean? What does that look like? And so for this series, saying a picture is worth a thousand words. Like, What does a, a picture of surrender look like? And so today we're going to get a picture of what surrender looks like. And we would say, well, okay, how do we surrender all of life to Jesus? How do we invite others to do the same? Well, next is by practicing our community practices, these five things right below it, believing the gospel, living as family, loving as servants, going as messengers, relying on the spirit. We may ask, like, okay, those sound nice, but what does that really even mean? What does that, what does that look like in real life? Well, a picture's worth a thousand words. Let's get a picture of what does it look like to believe the gospel? What's a picture of the gospel? What's a picture of family? What's a picture of service? What's a picture of going as a messenger? What's a picture of relying on the Spirit. And so as we go through a series, we're going to do, what's a picture of surrender? What's a picture of the gospel? What's a picture of family? What's a picture of service? What's a picture of going as a messer? What's a picture of reliance and dependence on the Spirit? And so we're going to go through these six weeks, those pictures, and our, our art has changed. We're missing one image. Heather was hoping to make it. She has the last image. Um, and she's going to bring the image. And all these are a picture uh, Emma worked on. I gave her, here's the passages, here's the words. And she came up with images that were a good representation of the pictures. And we'll, I'll hit them as we go throughout of what they, she didn't give me her interpretation, but I'm going to like interpret them for myself. You know, it's kind of how art works. It's like artist puts their thing out, other people interpret it. So I'm going to kind of interpret them for how they, uh, I react to how she interpreted the passages and the words too and we'll go through and you know picture of what each of these things are as I said today we're going to do a picture of surrender what does surrender look like and the question as we think about conflict of values what happens when we have a conflict of values with Jesus you know if we have a relationship there's a conflict of values well who wins Husband and wife, who wins when there's a conflict of values? A boss and an employee, who wins? Well, usually the boss wins. Um, unless you're going to have a short employment. Um, husband and wife, two friends. When, you have a, when you're at the store and you're deciding what to buy, the healthier thing, the least expensive, lesser expensive thing, which, one, which value wins? But when we have a conflict of values with Jesus, when our values differ, who wins? And in this story, Jesus surfaces a conflict of values uh, in, in this guy, in the story, he says he wants to inherit eternal life. He says he wants to be a part of God's kingdom. But Jesus shows that he values something else more. And he asks them to decide. And he might not have even known he had this conflict of values. He thinks he values the kingdom. He might not have even known he had it. So let's turn to Matt, uh, Mark chapter 10. Let's just start with verses 17 through 22 to start. As Jesus t- first talks to this man as he approaches him. 
And so verse 17, Mark chapter 10, it's on page 846 of the Bibles we use here. It says this, and as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up, knelt before him, and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit <coughs> eternal life? So this guy has a question. He's heard about Jesus, maybe heard him taught. He runs up, says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He kneels before him. He has this respect for him. And it seems like he has, you know, he's pretty earnest about it. I mean, how many people do you run up to and kneel before them? Like, I just need to get this thing answered. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Like, I am so er eager and earnest to get this question answered. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Verse 18, And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So Jesus, at the outset, is kind of questioning uh, the very basis of, like, well, what, why is that the way you're addressing me? And, you know, what, why... Is you putting this label on me? Like, what? Why do you think I'm so good? What do you? And it was very common to think like, well, why are we? Why do you? We should be just looking at like God is the ultimate good one. Why are you calling me good? Just call me teacher. God is the good one. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. But then he goes on to answer his question, verse 19. Okay, well, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Now, where, where do those commandments come from? Where do, where do those come from in the Bible? Exodus 20. Exodus 20, which are from Ten Commandments. Yeah, do not murder, do not commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't defraud, honor your father and mother. Those are part of the Ten Commandments. They're... they're famous Ten Commandments from the Bible. So Jesus is like, okay, you want to inherit eternal life? You know the commandments. Don't do these things. But uh, they're from the second half of the Ten Commandments. The first half, he skips over. He gives from the second half that are dealing with other people. So the man responds, verse 20. He said to him, Teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. So this must be pretty exciting for him. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Here's what you must do. You know the commandments. Keep these commandments. I've done them. You know, wouldn't that be kind of exciting? Like, I, what, what do I need to do to, you might ask your boss, what do I need to do to get a raise? Or you ask, you know, whoever it is, what do I need to do to get this? And they tell you, uh, this is what you need to do. I've done it. So do I get the prize? Do I get the whatever I want? And he tells the teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. I've kept all of these commandments. I haven't murdered anybody. I haven't committed adultery. I haven't stolen anything. I haven't told, you know, slandered anybody, bore false witness. I haven't defrauded anybody. I've given everybody what I've owed. I've honored my father and mother. Jesus, looking at him, verse 21, <coughs> loved him and said to him, well, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, give to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. So Jesus, the man... It's pretty excited. I've done it all. I've done everything. All those commandments that you said, Jesus, I've done them all. Jesus looks at him. I just love the slowness. Looks at him, loved him, and says, Will you lack one thing? Go sell all you have, give it to the poor. Then you're going to have treasure in heaven. You know, so notice the opposite there. You're, you've got all this stuff. I want you to sell all that stuff, sell all your treasure you have on earth. 
You're going to have treasure in heaven. Sell all your treasures. You're going to have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. Verse 22 says, Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful. Why? For he had great possessions. This is the first moment we learn that he's rich, that he has great possessions, that he has a lot of stuff to give up. Because at the outset, we just thought this was, this was just some guy coming up. And at the beginning, we thought <coughs> this guy would do anything to inherit eternal life. He runs up to Jesus, kneels before him. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Just tell me the answer. What must I do, Jesus? Just tell me what it is I need to do. Jesus is like, we well, you know the commandments. Okay, I've done them all. Well, you lack one thing. What is, you know, what is it? Just tell me. What is the one thing I must do? Sell all you have. Give to the poor. You'll have what you ask. You can inherit eternal life. And I know you'll lose all that stuff, but you're going to have treasure in heaven. And just a, a side note, well, not really a side note, but there's going to be kind of like um, synonyms used here. In, eternal life is used. Um, heaven is talked about. The kingdom is going to be talked about. Um, salvation is going to be talked about. And these are all synonyms for the same thing. Salvation, kingdom, uh, eternal life, uh, all the same thing. Jesus says, you lack one thing. Okay, I want, I want eternal life. That's what I want. I want that. He says, you just have to do this and you'll have it. But he's disheartened because that's the one thing apparently he wasn't willing to give up in order to get what he says that he wants. And one way to think about worship, what we worship, is worth-ship. I'll put a little dash in there. Worth-ship. What is worth the most to you? Whatever is worth the most to you is what you will surrender anything for. And this man's possessions are worth the most to him. And he's willing to surrender eternal life for them. He's willing to not have eternal life in order to have his possessions. He says, I want eternal life. And Jesus says, give up your possessions, you'll have eternal life, you'll have treasure in heaven. But what's worth more to them? He's willing to walk away from Jesus, let Jesus go on to the next town, his possessions and staying with them is worth more to him than having eternal life, having treasure in heaven. And so he's disheartened because he has great possessions. And so Jesus moves on. And now Jesus is speaking to one rich man in particular here, but in the next verse he's going to talk to all rich people. He's going to, uh, this rich man goes home, he's disheartened, um, and then Jesus is going to talk to his disciples about all rich people. And we may easily breeze over this, thinking, well, that's rich people, and we're not rich. But the reality is most, if not all of us, have more in common with this rich man than we do with poor people. I'm not saying all of us. I don't know all of our situations. I'm saying most, if not all of us. So you think about the Lord's Prayer, what happens in the Lord's Prayer. Um, Father, give us our daily bread. That's daily bread. Food, water, shelter, not, you know, three-story homes and, you know, car and garage and all this stuff and not a cable and phones and iPads and TVs and cars and, and lawns and lawnmowers and bikes and motorcycles and, you know, multiple pairs of shoes and, you know, and, and multiple shirts and pants and, you know, shoes to match the color of the outfit we just wanted to wear that day because of the mood we were in. We don't feel like cooking. We have someone to do it for us and we may feel like we don't have 
money because we've spent it on all the things we want. We've gone out to eat when we didn't feel like eating. We've gone and grabbed coffee when we didn't feel like brewing our own coffee or treating ourselves. And we can think we have no money because we're spending it on nicer and nicer stuff or on maintaining the nice stuff that we already do have or doing fun things or making our lives more convenient and comfortable. And that's actually how kings and queens lived back in Jesus' day. And so often we can feel like, man, I just have no money. And so I'm not like you know, this rich guy who has all this stuff. But the reality is when the Bible talks about rich people, um, for most of us, uh, we are actually have more in common with a rich person in the Bible than we do with a poor person in the Bible because we are not living on the streets uh, standing you know, by the, the temple or wherever it is, asking people to give us money, but we're um, wearing the clothes we want, we're eating the food we want, we're living where we want, um, and we're doing what we want and not wondering where is my next meal going to come from. Um, or we're living you know, on thousands of dollars a day and driving around vehicles and putting gas in them. And, uh, so we just have a lot more in common with a rich person than a poor person. So I don't say that to make us feel bad, but for us to know some of the warnings in the Bible to rich people, we need to be like, I need to take this seriously. That when it talk, Jesus is talking about money, I need to hear that. We need to hear that. Um, and as I was thinking about this, I was thinking yesterday, um, we just, in our gospel fluency group, um, was meeting Thursday, and the passage there was talking about rich people. Um, and it's like, man, it's everywhere in the Bible <laughs> that uh, rich people begin to just it's just easy for me to think, you know what, it's just kind of my goal every year to accumulate nicer and nicer things until I just have all the nice things I want. You know, Christmas time, I just accumulate a couple more nicer gifts. And my house life is nicer. And I was thinking yesterday, I'm like scraping off our car. We forgot to put it in the garage. And, you know, like sometimes I say, like, you know, something, one of the downfalls of when we bought our house was, you know, like, man, we didn't get a house with a detached garage, and once one of our garage doors, we couldn't put an automatic garage door over it, so I have to lift it up. You know, poor me. It's like, <laughs> you know, right? Like, we can start to think, like, you know, poor me that I have to walk down my driveway out right in the cold, and I have to use my arm to lift up one of the sides of my two-car garage that I have two vehicles to put in, right? Like, we can start to think this way, and it's like, what? some people don't even have a, a roof or food or water or clothes to wear, and we can start to think like, you know, oh, I should have a nice, these nicer things. We get caught up in these, these way, these, uh, thinking this way. If only I had more. And Jesus, we can tend to get caught up in these ways uh, and so we need to hear these warnings to rich people. But with this rich young man, as we're talking about surrender, this picture of surrender, this man does not surrender to Jesus. Jesus says, I need, he calls him to surrender, and he goes home. He holds on to his stuff, and he goes home. So we see from him what surrender isn't. So first of all, surrender is not respecting Jesus as a good teacher that we look to it for advice and help. Surrender is not respecting Jesus as a good teacher that we look to for advice and help. He comes to Jesus, he calls him good teacher, he asks him for advice and help with a question, but he doesn't give his life to him. He doesn't actually align his life around what Jesus says. He doesn't actually follow Jesus. He doesn't 
give up anything for Jesus. He comes, good teacher, asks him a question, takes it under advisement, doesn't actually do what he says. Surrender is not respecting Jesus as a good teacher that we look to for advice and help. Surrender is not keeping a list of commandments to get into heaven. He's kept some commandments, and he's keeping them because he wants to inherit eternal life. He's like, I'm keeping these in order to get eternal life. But he doesn't act, hasn't actually given his life over. Like, if it, you ask any more than this, or ask anything outside of this, give up my stuff? Well, no, this is the list of commandments, and there's maybe some other ones I would do, but if you ask something outside of my comfort zone of what I'm comfortable doing, no. Surrender is not keeping a list of commandments to get into heaven. And surrender is not being a good person. If you looked at this guy's life, you'd be like, wow, it's good to his wife, good to his employees, it's good to other people. Surrender is not being a good person. Uh, he's, just, he's a decent guy. He probably even gives to the poor in, in ways he feels comfortable. Like That was what good people did in Jesus' day. Rich people would give to the poor. It was something you did as a, a good Jewish person. But surrender is not being a good person. So let's move on to the lesson that he gives to his disciples in verses 23 to 27. Verse 23, And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, so he's talking to this guy, everyone's listening, Jesus then looks around and this guy walks away, he said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth, which includes all, or most if not all of us, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. Now why are they amazed at his words? And some translations say astounded. And why would they be amazed? Why would they be astounded at his words? And like I said, in that day, um, just like in our day, it would be normal for rich people um, to, as an act of you know, piety, a good religious person, um, who's one of the main things you would do is you give to charity. That's something you would do. It's like, okay, what are the core things that a good person who's like uh, religious and fears God, what would you do? Oh, you should give some of it to charity or put some in the offering basket or whatever. And we may hear of rich people who give away millions of dollars to charity and we're wowed by it. Wow, that's just, that's like amazing. This athlete started this charity foundation or this billionaire or Bill Gates or whoever it is, they wow, they gave these millions of dollars to start this hospital or to this a cancer foundation or whatever it is. They give away millions or billions of dollars. And maybe uh, they're like this rich man. Well, they haven't murdered anybody. They're faithful to their wife or their husband. They're an honest businessman that doesn't steal. You know, they do everything by the book. They don't slander and talk bad about other people. They only have positive things to say about people. They're like on the news cycle sometimes. And it's like, oh, they just have nice things to say about people. They're respectful. They pay their employees well and give them great bonuses. They even serve at a soup kitchen on Thanksgiving Day. You see like pictures of them on you know, magazines and stuff. Uh, and they don't make anybody work on Christmas. You know, they give all their employees off Christmas Day. don't make them work and stuff. And they have a good relationship with their parents. You know, they have broken relationships. They have, you know, family get-togethers every holiday. Like the whole family gets together. You look at them and you think, oh, that's a good person. Surely they're going to heaven. Certainly they are saved. How couldn't they be? God's blessed them with money. And when they put money in the offering basket, man, the person who's holding the offering basket, you feel it. You feel it when they drop their money in the offering basket. It's not like my couple cents when I put them in there. They're such a good person. And so it's easy to look and see, like, 
well, how could they not be saved? They're such a good person. And so when these disciples hear, you know, how hard is it for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven? What? Are you kidding me? Like this, some, we might hear of somebody like that doing so many good things. And then you look, they have such a respectable and good life. Like they're a good person. They're doing so many good things. And they, then you hear like, they, how hard it is for them to enter the well, how am I supposed to enter the kingdom of heaven? Like, I'm just barely even making it by. Like, I'm out there fishing. You know, these, some of these guys are fishermen. I'm out there fishing, you know, all the time, just busting my butt, trying to barely make it by. Sometimes I can't even donate any money to, you know, keeping up the temple in Jerusalem. I can sometimes don't even make it to all the festivals. They make it to all the festivals. You know, I'm like hardly even making it by with my family. And how am I supposed to think that I can't make it in? And so we may, can get that mentality sometimes of somebody who can just do everything. But this, Jesus is saying this stuff is not what saves a person. So what does he go on to say? <coughs> Disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, this is verse 24, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. With man it is impossible. Because when our eyes are on our accomplishments, this man asked, What must I do in order to enter inherit eternal life, to enter the kingdom, to uh, be able to have salvation. And the disciples are thinking like, well, if this guy can do all, if the rich can do all this stuff, and I can't do any of that stuff, well, then who in the world can be saved if, if all their stuff they do doesn't get them in? And I can't do any of that. Well, no one can be saved. And Jesus is saying, with man, it's impossible. And in fact, what holds up a rich person is they have all this stuff that's just choking out the, the love of God in their hearts. That They have so much that's cr cramping on it. If, if you remember Jesus' parable of the sower, that the cares of this world choke out the love of God, the seed of the gospel, in their hearts. And now somebody who doesn't have all those riches has less choking it out. I mean, there's other things that can choke out um, the, the word of God in their hearts, but they have less choking it out. But Jesus says, with man it's impossible to enter the kingdom, but with God all things are possible. Someone who knows that they're only saved by God is ready to surrender. They're ready to sell everything and follow Jesus in order to get eternal life. And if they just want to check the final box of good deeds for them to do, they have not yet ex accepted that with man it's impossible to enter the kingdom of God and inherit eternal life. Because for a rich person it can feel like I have control. I mean, you know, like, I can feel like well, I have the resources at my disposal, so I can kind of just do stuff. I have ownership over my life. For a rich person, uh, for, for many of us in America who have lots of resources at our disposal, lots of services at our disposal, lots of options at our disposal, they can feel like I can kind of be like the Lord of my life. Like, I can just choose my path, my career path. I can find money. I can get things. You know, even when we get down on hard times, like we can get provided for um, in lots of different ways. And so it's like, man, it takes us a long time to hit bottom, to hit the end of ourselves. And so when we have riches, it's like, well, I don't really need God. I don't really need other things. And so 
it's hard to say like, well, why would I surrender all of my stuff to you to follow you, Jesus? Like I've got all this stuff back here, and so that's why it's hard for those of us who have many resources to say, yeah, I'll give it all up to follow you, to surrender to you. Jesus wants the disciples to start seeing things differently. The disciples need to know it's not what they have given up that saves them, but it's who they follow. They need to know that it isn't about what we do, but it's about who we love. It's not, what must I do to enter the kingdom? It's, who do you love? What do you treasure? And who are you committed to? It's not what you do, but what you love that determines whether you enter the kingdom. And this man loved his riches more than he loved God. And that was the issue. Jesus said, you know the commandments, all these commandments about loving people. Oh, I've done all those. But he skipped the first commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. And he has money as a god before God. And so he goes back and tests them. Okay, give up all your money. If you want to enter the kingdom, give up all your money and follow me. Jesus is the Son of God. Come love me more than your money. And he couldn't do it. And uh, it's not what we do, but we love that determines whether we enter the kingdom. We need to love God more than anything, more than uh, anything else in order to enter the kingdom. That's what he calls us to. And so what does Peter say in verses 28 through 31? Peter began to say to him, Well, see, we've left everything and followed you. So Peter's getting the idea. Uh, well, you asked this guy to leave everything to follow you. And Peter's like, okay, okay well, we've done that. Okay, see, we've left everything and followed you. So verse 29, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. And so it brings us back to what he said to the, the man, that give up all that you have, you have treasure in heaven. And so he says, yes, Peter, you've left everything to follow me. And you're going to have treasure in heaven. You're going to have eternal life. You're going to be in the kingdom. You will see back a hundredfold whatever you've given up. Like the treasure in heaven is worth much more than uh, whatever you've given up here. The big idea of what we uh, captures what we see in this passage, uh, if you want to write it down, is that surrender is treasuring Jesus above all else. Surrender is treasuring Jesus above all else. Surrender is treasuring Jesus above all else. Or you could say surrender is loving Jesus above all else. Surrender is valuing Jesus above all else. And we surrender to what we treasure. That this man in that moment, you know, he has a conflict of values. He's saying, I value inheriting eternal life. I value entering the kingdom. I value salvation. I be, value being with God, in relationship with God. And, but he also values his stuff his possessions, his money, uh, the things he has on earth. And Jesus in that moment says, like, you want to inherit eternal life, you're going to have to choose which do you value more, which do you love more, which do you treasure more, God or your stuff. you got to choose. And he was sad. He went back to his stuff. And he couldn't choose the one. He, ch- he chose the one over the other. Surrender is treasuring Jesus 
above all else. Surrender is leaving everything and following Jesus. And surrender is total heart and life commitment. It's a, it's a blank check. Surrender is a yes to every command and every request of Jesus. It's a, it's a pledge of loyalty and allegiance to Jesus as our King. It's valuing, treasuring, and loving Him above all else. And sometimes this passage is a, well, would you, does Jesus ask all of us to sell everything we have and come follow him? You know, like if we're reading this passage today, you come to it and you're like, whoa, like Jesus was standing here today. Is he saying, each one of us, sell everything you have if you want to follow me? Is that what he's saying to us? And so then sometimes we come to, well, it's, we just need to be willing to, willing to sell everything we have in order to follow him. And I don't think that is a great way to go about this passage. Uh, that we, we sit with all of our stuff and we enjoy it however we want. And if Jesus comes and asks us to sell it, okay, okay, then I'll sell it, Jesus, if you want me to. That I'm, will, I'm just going to use it however I want. And if you come and ask me to give it up, I'm willing to give it up. But until then, I'm just going to do whatever I want with it. But we, a better way to think of it is that we, with our stuff, as we have it, we give up our right to use it how we want as we have it. That we give up ownership of it now. It, that we say now it all belongs to him. It's all surrendered. It's saying uh, we have it, but it's, it's yours now to use it as you want. That it's not, I have to sell all. For this man, it was, you need to sell it all and come follow me. Um, but right now, it's as if we've sold it all. That it isn't for me to use as I want, it's in my hand to be used as Jesus wants, that he's given it to me for him. It's I've surrendered my rights to use all of this stuff as I want. It's surrendered to be used as you want, that you've given it to me uh, for your sake, um, for your kingdom, for the gospel. And so as we are thinking about what should we do, we want to think about what is most valuable to you. The rich man shows that he values his possessions more than eternal life, more than treasure in heaven, more than the kingdom of God, more than salvation, more than following Jesus, more than God, more than relationship with God. And is there anything in your life that you value more than eternal life, more than the kingdom of God, more than salvation, more than following Jesus, more than God? Is there Anything, I would have brought my bowling, you know, the sweet bowling ball in a bag that I often bring. I forgot it. That would have been, it's been an awesome time for that. But, you know, that bowling ball, we could imagine it. You guys can imagine it. I've used it enough. Bowling ball. And this guy has his bowling ball, and he comes, you know, dragging it up to Jesus. Jesus, what well, must I do to inherit eternal life? And he says, well, you got to let go of that and come follow me. And, and he it's just like he's disheartened because he has a lot of it. And so he goes back, goes back to it. And it's like, what are you holding on to? And Jesus is saying, follow me. I'm worth more than that. You have a hundredfold of whatever you think you're giving up, whatever you think that is worth, you'll have a hundredfold of it when you come to me. I'm worth, I mean, hundredfold is like more than you can imagine. You could say infinite. He could have said infinite. He's worth infinitely more. And you kind of be like, hundredfold? could be better than that. It's infinite, but a hundredfold is like more than you can imagine. I mean, if you had a crop of hundredfold, it's just like you can't imagine it. Um, it's like 
Jesus is worth infinitely more than whatever <coughs> that thing is we're holding on to. It's like, but Jesus, I, I love my TV. I can't give that up. And he's like, I'm worth so much more than that. Or whatever it is, I can't give up $30 a month. Or you know, whatever it is we're holding on to that is keeping us from experiencing more of him. Are you willing to give up that thing to follow Jesus this year? And so I was praying and thinking about for my own life, um, what is it that I have trouble surrendering? Um, and what do we all have trouble surrendering? And um, I think there's these three big categories. Uh, what do we hold on to? Um, I think it's time stuff and image and stuff I'm kind of including money under that so time stuff and image we hold on to our time that we say I'm just going to use this how I want and I'm not going to surrender it to you I'm going to just do it in the way that I want to do it and I'm not going to surrender my time to you Um, and he says I want you to give up some time for me I want you to use your time how I want you to use it. And we say, I can't give that up to you. It's how I'm using it, you know, sleeping or watching TV or going and uh, whatever I do with it, that's more valuable to me than doing with it what you want me to do, than coming and following you. And we don't give it up. Or our, our stuff, if like, oh, I want to, this stuff is, I need this stuff. I want to keep it. This is more valuable to me than whatever it is. Or our image that we say, like, I can't let this person think differently of me, or I'm scared that they're, I can't talk about God with this person because of, or I can't bring this topic up with them, or I can't uh, do this or that, bring up spiritual things with them, because what if they don't like me, or they get mad at me, or they feel like I'm weird, or whatever, and we control our image with other people, and we're scared of what their opinion of of us is. And why, and then I was praying, well, why do we hold on to those things? There's two reasons, at least two reasons, I think. And first is that we think it's ours. That we think our time is ours. We think our stuff is ours, and we think our image is ours. We think it belongs to us. We think we own it. And so we say, uh, I hold on to my time because, well, this is mine. I own it. This stuff is mine, and this image is mine. And so I'm going to do with it what I want. But our time is all given to us by God. Our stuff is all given to us by God. And, and whose image were we made? We were made in God's image. And so we're supposed to do with our image what God wants us to do with it. We're supposed to reflect Him. We're not supposed to be like, well, this image is for me to manage and for me to look how I want to look to other people. No, I'm supposed to look like God to other people. It all belongs to God. And secondly, we think we know how to use it better than God. We hold on to it and don't surrender it because... Well, I think I know how to use my time better than you, God. I think I know how to use my stuff better than you, God. I think I know how to use my image better than you, God. That uh, my time would be best used um, doing this and this and that. And my stuff would be better used using it for my purposes and holding on to it for me. And my image would be best used um, keeping me looking good and keeping me looking how I want instead of using my time for you and using my stuff for you and using my image for you. And so we think we know how we could use it. We think we know how to use it better than God. So we see in this guy, in this story, a picture with him of a failure to surrender. That Jesus says, do this, come follow me. 
and he says he's sad and he walks away. But then we see with Peter and the disciples, we've left everything to follow you. And so which one are we going to be? Are we going to, is Jesus going to say to us, do this, and we feel sad and we walk away? Because some, because the thing we have is that we can read the Bible. Jesus isn't physically standing here to move on to the next town. We read the Bible and we feel like, well, I don't really want to do that. And then we wake up the next day and we still call ourselves a follower of Jesus. And even though if Jesus was physically here, he'd move on to the next town and we wouldn't be following him. And But we say, like, well, I don't feel like doing that, but I'm going to wake up tomorrow and still say I'm a follower of Jesus. Uh, even though we didn't follow him on to where, where he said, I want you to come with me. Um, and so he's calling us to come with him. So it's two questions to reflect on. And I'll give you a couple, let you write them down or just let them be in your head. I'll just give you a moment uh, to write down your, your answer or what comes to mind. Do I want God more than anything else? Do I want God more than anything else? Maybe you're like, well, that's kind of hard to answer. Maybe it's more like, do I want to want God more than anything else? Do I want to want God more than anything else? And it's like, if that's a yes, man, pray for that. Like, that's that's the heart of a disciple. I want to want God more than anything else. That's the heart of a disciple. And if you're like, I'm struggling with wanting him more than anything else. There's some things I'm needing to weed out of my life. It's like, that's not okay, but there's forgiveness for that. A disciple is imperfectly following Jesus, but they want to want God more than anything else. And they're getting those things out of their life to letting him go. Do I want God more than anything else? Do I want to want God more than anything else? By my living, what do I show I value more than him? By my living, what do I show I value more than him? So do I want God more than anything else? Do I want to want God more than anything else? By my living, what do I show I value more than him? Let's give you a moment, a couple moments of silence to um, pray and think and reflect and talk to God.
Jesus <clears throat> reminds us. And I want us to, to cl- close this sermon by making absolutely sure that the, we hear what he says, that with man entering the kingdom, inheriting eternal life, being saved, is impossible. With God, all things are possible. That it is not about what we surrender that is gets us saved, gets us in the kingdom. It's not making a list of like, well, I've surrendered all these things, God, so you have to let me in. It's about uh, not what we've surrendered, but it's about who we've surrendered to, who we love and who we've grabbed onto. That salvation is found in a relationship. And we have to let go of other things that we have to turn from, turn to God. That's what Jesus invites us man to do. Turn from your riches. Turn to God in this moment. And Jesus calls us to be a community where he is the treasure at our center, like our logo shows us, that we're a community. Jesus at the treasure at our center, uh, the treasure at our center, like this treasure chest uh, that we're all around, surrendered to. Let's pray. Father, we, we know that it's your work in us that makes Jesus our treasure, that your spirit ignites our love for him, our love for you. So would you uh, let our hearts feel the weight of your worth, let us see your beauty and your brilliance and your your majesty, your glory. Um, Would you let us see your love for us, uh, your grace toward us, your mercy toward us, the forgiveness you freely offer, that you are worth more than all possessions on earth, than all the opinions of others, um, than all the time in the world that we could accumulate for ourselves, that you are the most um, worthwhile thing to pursue, the most worthwhile thing to have, the most um, worthwhile person um, to love. And so forgive us for those times that we do not love you above all else. Would you increase our love for you? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.